Welcome to the Borders and Globalization podcast. Welcome to our listeners. I'm speaking from the traditional territory of the Lekwagen peoples in the Selish Sea region. Today, we are going to talk about the cross-border Cascadia region at the U.S.-Canada border with Laurie Trotman, who is the director of the Border Policy Research Institute at Western Washington University, located in the U.S., but very close to the Canadian side. Welcome on board, Laurie Trotman. It's great to see you today. Thank you for having me. The objective of this podcast is to better understand both the Cascadia cross-border region and the U.S.-Canada border in this specific region of the Pacific Northwest. To begin our interview, Laurie, could you tell us what is the Border Policy Research Institute, please? So the Border Policy Research Institute is a program that was created back in 2006, and it was established through a partnership with a professor here at Western, Don Alper, and U.S. Senator Patty Murray. And they came together and they got funding to secure this program, largely out of a recognition that after the terrorist events of 9-11, there was a huge disruption to the flow of people and the flow of goods and the cross-border connections between Washington State and British Columbia. So they wanted to develop this dedicated research entity that would focus on the Canada-U.S. border from a policy perspective in our region so that we would have an expertise in understanding the influence and the role of the border, largely on the Washington state side, but of course, um, in the other direction as well in British Columbia. Thank you, Laurie, for this presentation. We know that the two countries work closely together to manage an efficient movement of people and goods across the border. How would you describe the U.S.-Canada border in general, and especially in your region, in terms of neighborhood relations and cooperation? So I think one thing to note about the U.S.-Canada border in general that's that's often put out there is it's the largest or the longest undefended land border in the world, and it sits at over 5,000 miles. It's an incredibly long border. And because it's so long, it's also very diverse. So some areas of the Canada-US border are just complete uninhabited wilderness. And some areas are twin cities, um, very densely populated urban locations may be divided by a river and connected by a bridge. Um, here in our region, we we do not have any bridges or, or any rivers that separate us. We have a land border. And in some areas... Um, we are pretty densely populated, kind of on the western front. And then as you move east, you get pretty quickly into areas of, of wilderness. So because there's so much diversity along the Canada-US border, we're also connected in different ways. And that has a really important bearing on the influence of border policy in different regions. So one example I often give is if you were in the Windsor-Detroit corridor, uh, most of the trade would be conducted by large automobile manufacturing companies moving the same goods back and forth and a lot of people crossing for work. Here in the Western Washington, Western British Columbia region, we don't really have the same types of flows, whether that's commodities or that's people. We tend to have mixed goods moving back and forth, um, which kind of creates some challenges for border policy. And then the people moving back and forth are really moving primarily for discretionary purposes, much less so than kind of a commuter workforce like you might see in other parts of the border. Um, I also think 
<clears throat> generally speaking, as you mentioned, we have a really collaborative and innovative border. We do a lot of things together. We solve a lot of problems together and we share a lot of information, which really kind of integrates our border agencies, but also the communities on both sides of the border. And here in the Pacific Northwest or the Cascadia region, whatever you want to call it, uh, we really have kind of a history of a culture of collaboration, which is pretty unique. It's not necessarily the case in other regions. And there's a lot of reasons that we kind of have that uh, shared culture. Some of that comes down to, I think, shared quality of life values. People out here in Cascadia really enjoy the natural environment, um, put a high priority on environmental health and an outdoor lifestyle. We also have pretty similar politics between Western BC and Western Washington. And we also kind of share that identity of being really far from our capital cities, whether that's DC or Ottawa. And I think that creates kind of an, an independence and a kind of um, solve problems our own way out here because DC and Washington are far away and they may not even understand some of the dynamics of our cross-border region. And then one thing um, in addition that really is kind of unique to the Cascadia region is the tech ecosystem that we share on both sides of the border. So both Vancouver and Seattle are home to Microsoft and Amazon, some of the largest tech companies in the world that are increasingly um, having offices and uh, presence and employees on both sides of the border. And that kind of creates another form of integration um, in our region as well. Wow. Thank you, Laurie. Uh, now let's speak about more in details about this fabulous region of Cascadia. We know that historically this region was colonized by Great Britain and the USA and that the two nations had signed a treaty of joint occupation for the Oregon region in 1818. So, my question is this one. What is the Cascadia region? Is it just an awareness of a region, a biological region, or more a, a societal region? Does she really exist? Very good question. Um, I am of the mind that the region exists somewhat to the extent that we see it as one and, and we believe in it. I do think we have a lot of characteristics of regional cohesion. You mentioned the indigenous nations that have inhabited both sides of the border since time immemorial. Uh, they still have very strong presence and sovereign nations. Um, I think we have over somewhat 60 different languages that are spoke by the Coast Salish peoples on both sides of the border. Um, and they continue to to have Coast Salish gatherings and other real sort of regional um, presence, even though m most of those communities were bifurcated by the border um, over 100 years ago. Uh, we also have, as I mentioned, this sort of integrated businesses and an important part of, I think, of the kind of cohesiveness of a region is the transportation infrastructure. You know, how connected can people and businesses and communities be? And we have a lot of different ways and a lot of different connections to move between Western BC and Western Washington, um, of course, including getting between Vancouver Island and different parts of Washington state. So we have a pretty good network of cross-border transportation routes between the area that that really provide, I think, to the certain extent, the opportunity for for soft diplomacy for us to to share our opinions, to see each other, to shop on both sides, and I think that knowledge of what's happening on the other side of the border helps to create 
um, sort of a community of, of practice. And then we also have, I think, a really important component of um, the existence of a Cascadia region is the shared waters of the Salish Sea. The Salish Sea didn't always have one name that spanned the border. Um, and you still see a lot of maps that are either the Puget Sound or the Georgia Strait um, or the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And, and those are different names depending on what side of the border you're on for shared water. So I think it's only been about 13 or 14 years that the term Salish Sea was officially recognized and is increasingly being used. And having that common name for shared waters really creates a platform to engage on, on shared issues and shared challenges through a regional lens rather than kind of a national lens. Thank you, Laurie, for this uh, realism. Um, we know that the COVID pandemic has led to the closure of borders all over the world. What were the effects of COVID on cross-border relations in your region? <clears throat> Do you have any examples to share? For example, I'm thinking about the small piece of territory of Point Roberts. Point, Rob Point Roberts, which is moreover, in, in my opinion, technically not an enclave because it is in the American territorial sea. So, Laurie, uh, would it have been possible to regulate the Cascadia region differently? Mm. Yeah, so many of your listeners will know that Canada and the U.S. agreed to restrict non-essential travel on their shared land and marine borders back in March 2020. And those restrictions lasted more or less for a year and a half. Canada eased them first, with the U.S. following several months later. And as I mentioned previously, our region, a lot of the people moving back and forth are moving for discretionary purposes. So the border restrictions were particularly challenging for our region because all of those families, those friends, people traveling, even for work many times were, were unable to cross. And uh, I think it's hard to you know, really describe how devastating that was for communities, for families, um, for spouses that might be on either side. Eventually, people were able to move if they were had an immediate family on the other side. But um, same-sex couples had a lot of challenges because they tended to not be married as, as much as, as their counterparts. And so a lot of um, really emotional time for a lot of, of people here. And one example before I address Point Roberts, where we saw a lot of that was at the Peace Arch Park, which was the only place along the entire Canada-U.S. border during the border restrictions where people could come from both sides and be in the same space. So that park was literally overrun by people from all over North America um, coming to be together, but certainly a lot of people from uh, the Cascadia region spending a lot of time in that park to see families and friends and loved ones on on either side because there was no other way for them to be together. Um, and of course, those challenges were faced by by other places along the border, but we do have unique situations here, like you mentioned, with Point Roberts, which was a community that's cut off by the 49th parallel, so cut off by the Canada-US border. And the only way for Point Roberts residents to get to the United States in normal times is to cross the border into Canada, back into the US. And most of that travel was very difficult for Point Roberts residents to undertake. Um, I've spoken with people out there a lot over the last few years, and I'll say that... Um, 
the border restrictions are still impacting Point Roberts residents, even though they've been lifted. Um, the community and the economy in particular has really been devastated, and they're still trying to recover from that. Uh, there was a lot of efforts to try to develop a diplomatic solution for the residents of Point Roberts. One thing the city of Bellingham did was um, create a passenger ferry, kind of an emergency passenger ferry to enable people who lived out there to at least get down to Washington state because they were really completely isolated otherwise. Um, but yeah, for the most part, um, I I felt that during this time that Canada and the U.S. could have really come together and developed a solution, particularly for the residents of Point Roberts, uh, who had no COVID for, for many months during the pandemic. There was actually no infections at all out there. But for various reasons, uh, I think a lot of them being political, rather than related to health, um, they they were pretty much isolated for most of the restrictions. Um, you know, we also, I mentioned the, the kind of dense network of transportation routes we have connecting the Cascadia region across the border. All of those, of course, ceased to operate during the pandemic. And uh, again, some of them have not recovered yet. We still don't have a ferry between the San Juan Islands and Vancouver Island, for example. So it gives you a sense of how you know, it's sort of easy to shut things down, um, but it's a lot harder to get them started again. And, and the border communities really took the brunt of that coming out of, of COVID and the border restrictions. One thing I will say is I think during the pandemic, even though we faced a lot of challenges and the border was was closed to the vast majority of travel, there was a lot of grassroots efforts to continue collaborating and continue communication. And so I was involved in one of those that was really a local effort that involved both of the border agencies uh, It involved local health departments, some of the schools, the mayors from the border communities. And for a while, we met uh, via Zoom every week and just kind of talked about what was going on? Uh, what did we see potentially coming down the pike in terms of any policy changes? And I think that continued and intentional communication did help to alleviate at least some of the anxiety and uncertainty faced by people who otherwise relied on the border during the restrictions. Wow. Okay, Laurie. Thank you very much for sharing all these precious insights about this region and the difficulties uh, built by the covid we know that the two states cooperate on many issues. We spoke a little bit about that. For example, they cooperate on defense. They cooperate also on su supply chains. They cooperate to modernize the Columbia River Treaty. The province of BC and the state of Washington cooperate for the protection of the environment. A cross-border region is a region where the economy and society are integrated on both sides of the territorial limits of the states with the least possible negative effects due to the differential. So my question is this one, Laurie. What are the main obstacles and challenges to overcome for this cross-border Cascadia region at different level, uh, political level, economic level, and maybe also environmental level? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think politically, uh, we're coming out of a really challenging time for overall for Canada and the U.S., and, and we felt that in the Cascadia region. Um, I don't think 
it's possible to overstate the negative impact of the Trump administration on Canada-U.S. relations. And um, like I said, we saw that kind of on the ground. We During the time when the Trump administration put tariffs on Canadian aluminum and steel, there was sort of this Canada-U.S. trade war. And we talked to some people in our region, some people who are typical border crossers who said, you know, I'm not going to drive to the United States. I'm not going to drive to Washington to shop because I'm sort of, you know, anti-American right now. And then I think that really carried through during the COVID pandemic, where we saw, at least in the early, early years during the Trump administration, we saw very different ways that Canada and the U.S. were dealing with and approaching the pandemic. And I think Hopefully, with the Biden administration and relatively good relations at the federal level, we're sort of moving away from that um, nationalistic sentiment and tendencies. Um, but we do feel it here, even though we are far away from Washington, D.C. and Ottawa. Um, and I think that is always a challenge um, when you're trying to sort of collaborate and integrate at the subnational scale where BC and Washington do have so much in common. Um, there's always that sort of that rub at the federal scale um, that that does influence us. And, and part of that, I think, is that we have the challenge of being bifurcated by this border that's managed at the federal scale. Um, and, and that's a real disconnect sort of between the lived experience in the borderlands and then the policy tools that that shape our mobility. And, and sometimes that works in the reverse way. I'll give one example um, of a very well-known program between Canada and the U.S. called the Nexus Program, which enables people to travel back and forth if they're kind of pre-cleared or, or pre-vetted. And that was actually a policy that started here at the Peace Arch Crossing uh, between Western British Columbia and Washington State. So that was an example where sort of our um, regional integration and how well we work together actually drove policy from the ground up. So it, it does work both ways, but I think we, we are challenged by the fact that our region is bifurcated by that federal border. Um, if we look at environmental challenges, um, we have a lot of shared environmental challenges, some related to, to climate change, um, some related to the overall health of the Salish Sea, which is impacted by a lot of tanker travel that comes, again, between our shared waters, um, urban smoke from fire, forest fires that we're increasingly seeing filter into our, our coastal communities. And I think that actually... Um, is an, a real opportunity for our region to come together and approach some of these challenges through shared approaches. We see a little bit of that, particularly um, related to things like orca recovery and salmon recovery, where we recognize that we have to work together to make these systems healthier. Uh, but I think we have a long way to go, but I think that's a real opportunity as well. Thank you, Laurie, for this great overview. So there are still many obstacles to cooperation, coordination, and collaboration. And you made a, a very interesting uh, distinction between the border at the federal scale and, and the no-border ideal at the subnational scale. And that's a very important topic for uh, our research. If we can do now a quick mapping of the different institutions in the cross-border region of Cascadia, um, who are the main public and private actors in uh, cross-border cooperation in the Cascadia region? Who are the most active players 
in terms of cross-border relations? Yeah, there's a, several organizations that really rise to the top. Uh, one is called the International Mobility and Trade Corridor Program. That's a binational group of transportation agencies, uh, security agencies. This includes U.S. Customs and Border Protection and Canada Border Services Agency and a number of other uh, more local um, like city mayors are involved in that. And that's a group that's been gosh, around for probably 20 years, I think. Um, and the model around that is to bring together the security and the transportation planners and again, sort of the, the local leaders to meet every month to just kind of check in what's going on, what's coming on the border. Are there pilot projects we might be able to collaborate on really all with the goal of improving the functioning of the border. So making it more efficient, making it um less of a kind of sticky point inhibiting travel? How do we improve wait times, um, things like that? And then, of course, um, also looking at freight flows as well, trying to uh, prevent backlogs of trucks waiting at the border. So that's been a really engaged and successful effort, but one that kind of flies under the radar because it's, it's somewhat technical um, and very much involves practitioners. Um, Another organization that's probably a little bit more familiar to more people is the Pacific Northwest Economic Region. This is a public-private partnership that has um, statutory authority. So there's member states and provinces that actually pay dues and are part of this organization. And it's really seen as a leader in bringing together not just elected officials at the state and provincial levels, but also the private sector as well. And that group spans a long variety of topics. I think they have 20 working groups. Um, one example of one of their working groups is invasive species. So how do you have sort of best practices on one side of the border, learning from best practices on the other, that might be uh, BC and Montana, to prevent the spread of invasive species. And there's also a boarding, border working group, which I co-chair, which is, again, really about trying to minimize the friction of the border so that we can be more integrated and, and more mobile in our region. And then the third one I'll mention is the Cascadia Innovation Corridor. This is a much newer effort that was started in 2016, largely at the behest of uh, Microsoft Corporation. So I think Microsoft saw itself expanding more out of Seattle and into Vancouver and really had the goal of creating this cross-border tech ecosystem. But since that point in time, it's expanded to look at um, a broad array of shared challenges by BC, Washington, and also Oregon, and is supported at very high levels of government. So the governor of Washington state, the governor of Oregon, and then the premier of Washington, or sorry, the premier of British Columbia are very much involved in that effort. So that one's a really interesting example of how you have political leadership, working with the private sector, also with universities. There's a lot of good university president presence in that effort um, with a goal of tackling all kinds of challenges um, from kind of congestion and uh, housing costs to broader issues around sustainability. And then I, I think one other one that I'd mentioned that's incredibly important is the Coast Salish Gathering. And this is a dialogue between the Coast Salish nations and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and Environment Canada. And um, I'm not sure how 
well this has recovered since the COVID years, but pre-COVID, this was a very successful and very active platform for the Coast Salish nations to engage with both Canada and the U.S. in environmental policy dialogue. Thank you, Laurie, for sharing all these informations about these great examples of cross-border cooperation and best practices in this region. When you visit the borders of the EU, European Union, you could see many cross-border cooperations with specific cross-border organizations for transport or health, for instance. According to you, Laurie, what are the most important drivers of cross-border integration in the Cascadia region? Yeah, it's always interesting to me to compare the European model with the Cascadian um, situation because we we have a we have a shared program between BPRI and and Borders and Globalization, as you know, where we bring scholars from around the world to come to our region and and work with us as cross border fellows. And a lot of them come from Europe, and a lot of them come with sort of a preconceived notion about what cross-border integration looks like, and it looks very different in the European context than it does here. Um, we don't have the same mechanisms for funding. We don't have the same uh, mechanisms for supporting that cross-border collaboration, and I think, or integration, I think in our region, it really kind of is more grassroots. It's really done from the bottom up, whether that's through a private company, um, through support of political leaders, or through um, community community efforts, uh, which which are very important to, especially in the environmental realm. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot of important elements. I mentioned already transportation. I think that's really key. People being able to to move back and forth between places um, in a feasible and efficient way. Certainly. Economics are important for driving cross-border integration. If you have a comparative advantage that sits on one side of the border um, and the other side can sort of you know, be a mutually beneficial aspect of that comparative advantage, then I think that drives things like su integrated supply chains, which we definitely have here in the Cascadia region. One great example is the Canadian company Harbor Air, which has built North America's first electric seaplane, a lot of the aviation parts from that came from aerospace companies right here in, in Washington state. So, you know, building things together ties our economies together, um, helps to make the case to political leaders why it's important for the border to work better. And then I often um, think kind of the most important aspect, particularly since we don't have those structures supporting cross-border integration like Europe has is just that social aspect of, of knowing your neighbors and interacting with families and friends on the other side of the border, kind of that soft diplomacy. We have a lot of dual citizens here. Um, even at the West the University where I work, Western Washington University, we have a number of Canadians who commute across the border. It's only maybe 20, 30 minute drive from the border. They work here, then they go back to Canada. And that's a real exchange of information and, um, you know, a real connection, I think, that can drive other portions of integration, which, which might be kind of more ad hoc and more informal. Thank you, Larry. And let's move on to the next question, a little bit more technical. Uh, sometimes crossing borders without noticing it 
is a very important parameter to assess the degree of integration of a region. So my question is this one. What are the mechanisms used to reinforce the fluidity of the border in the Cascadia region? You spoke about transportation and the very important infrastructures. But what do you think about the pre-clearance system, connectivity and interoperability of transport systems and new technologies? Yeah, and again, a huge issue for our region because a lot of the innovations which drove policy at the federal scale did come out of of here in our region. I mentioned the Nexus program. Um, another example is the enhanced driver's license. This was a a um, program created largely in the run-up to the Vancouver Olympics in 2010, where the state of Washington and, and the province of British Columbia said, there's going to be a lot of people here. They're going to be moving back and forth. How can we make it easier for them to cross? How can we make the border more fluid? A lot of Americans at the time and, and still now don't have passports. So they created the enhanced driver's license, which um, both Canadians and Americans can use to cross the land border between our countries. And that opened up the possibility for cross-border travel to a lot more people who previously might not have had that ability because they didn't have passports. Um, Pre-clearance is a really fascinating example of making the border more fluid. So the idea around pre-clearance, which doesn't exist yet in the United States, but is probably coming, is that you might be boarding a plane for the United States uh, from Vancouver or from a number of places in the world, you clear U.S. immigration and customs before you even get on the plane, and then you arrive in the United States, and you're treated like a domestic passenger. So that creates a huge amount of efficiency and certainty in your travel. You don't arrive to an international airport and think, oh, how long is it going to take me to clear customs and immigration? Um, You just kind of process right through. And here in our region, we are the only place in the world that has this sort of funky system of pre-inspection where we have a rail, we have um, marine cross-border transportation routes that are in the process of transitioning to full pre-clearance. Right now, they're just pre-inspection. So you still have to clear U.S. customs when you arrive in the United States. And that, again, creates a lot of uncertainty. You don't know how long the boat's going to be stuck at the dock before people can unload, et cetera, et cetera. So Expanding pre-clearance to multiple modes and implementing it here is going to create a lot more fluidity and certainty um, in travel time, which I think will also help to facilitate cross-border integration because the border, anytime the border creates more of a barrier um, or becomes sort of more of a friction in the travel route, um, less people are going to move back and forth. So I think... um, you know, Canada and the U.S. have done a really good job in terms of this effort to develop more of a perimeter model to the border. So less kind of screening and checking happening at the borderline and more of a shared approach to focusing on threats away from the border. And that does cr- take the pressure off of the border as kind of a choke point. Thank you, Laurie. In the world of academia, we love concepts and new terminology in order to describe as much as we can the facts. And the concept of multi-level governance describes the dispersion of authority, whether this is within a state or beyond the state. 
My question is about the integration system of governance. Is there an integrated governance structure in the Cascadia region? And with all the answers you, you, you gave me, I think it doesn't exist yet. But can there be more cross-border integration in, in, in this region? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, there's two challenges. There's kind of the horizontal governance challenge, which is between two different countries, two different provinces, multiple indigenous nations. And then there's the vertical sort of governance, which is how much does um, what's happening on the ground, say in British Columbia or in Washington state, how much does that kind of filter up or interact with the federal scale. And I think cross-border regions, they're, they're just really messy um, because there is so much different, so many different scales of, of governance. Um, and then certainly here and in some other places of the Canada-US border, um, the presence of, of multiple indigenous nations also creates sort of an additional governance um, platform and, and questions. So I don't have a good answer to your question, um, I think as you, you alluded to, it's sort of in the works and remains to be seen. Um, but there's certainly efforts to be um, more sort of cross-sectoral and more comprehensive and holistic and get out of the trap of kind of, um, you know, existing and governing in silos, maybe is the way I'd say it. Thank you, Laurie. Uh, you mentioned at multiple times the importance and presence of numerous sovereign indigenous people. The, the Cascadia region is also home to many indigenous communities who have inhabited this region for time immemorial. In particular, and you mentioned it, salmon has been one of the pillars of a cultural, dynamic, and interdependent region for a long time. We also know the Salish Sea bioregion, as you mentioned it also. But what is the role of indigenous peoples on both sides of borders in connected to the subject of cross-border relations? Are they involved in the at the economical level? Are they involved in, at the political level? Yeah, I think this is another um, situation that is rapidly evolving as both Washington and BC, and then our, our federal governments are um, really treating relationships with indigenous nations differently than we used to. Um, there's much more of an effort to involve indigenous nations and not just in sort of the work that's already being done, but coming to the table of the work that they've been doing for, for a very long time. And so I think this also is, an, is another very promising opportunity. Uh, many indigenous nations have family and have roots and have historical land that existed on both sides of the border and, and to a certain extent still does. So when we think about what we can learn in terms of cross-border relations, I think, you know, indigenous nations is, is probably the first place we should start. Um, and and I think that we're, we are starting to do that more. So I think that's, that's a movement in the right direction in terms of our, our cross-border relations. Thank you for this ancillary. Uh, for a long time, authors have thought of the border not as a line that separates, but as a zone that unites. How to influence governments to go beyond the boundary line 
and create a real border zone favorable to cross-border relations of all kinds, private and public. Is it a dream or not? Um, I don't think it's a dream, but it's a real challenge in North America. Uh, as we've talked about already, we don't have the same tools as Europe has, as, as we don't have a Schengen zone. I don't know that we ever will have that because the United States and Canada, um, you know, I think to a certain extent, like having somewhat hard borders for for better or for worse. Um, and this does inhibit our our opportunities for investment, particularly um, we don't have an interreg or anything like that. Um, and that it, that impacts our potential for for longevity. You know, what can we accomplish if we can't plan far into the future? If we can't engage on economic development together? Um, so, so that's always a challenge. Um, but that said, I do think that through strong partnerships, we can demonstrate how working together is is mutually beneficial. And, and we do that in a lot of ways in Cascadia. Um, we have great relations between our governor, our premier. I mentioned the Coast Salish gathering, which is bringing together Environment Canada and EPA on shared challenges. And so I think to a certain extent, it's sort of proving the value as as maybe the first step and then the investment can come after that. And, and I do think the Cascadia Innovation Corridor to a certain extent is doing that. It's showing um, what we can accomplish by working together, how much stronger we are by sharing our experiences and creating a platform for governments to recognize, okay, it does make sense to invest, even if these are U.S. dollars sort of going to Canada. Um, one other maybe driving example that I think can help to, to influence governments to go kind of beyond that boundary line thinking are um, cross-border environmental hazards. So here in our region, we have the Nooksack River, which is a fascinating um river system that originates in Washington state, but when it floods, it floods into Canada. And so about a year and a half ago, we had a devastating flood of the Nooksack River, and it really, really brought the attention of not just local, but also federal governments to the table to, to recognize that this is a problem we have to work together on because one country can't solve it for the other. Um, and it has to be mutual investment, uh, mutual agreement and mutual alignment, or we're going to continue to have a lot of displacement and a lot of problems around these situations. And that's just one example. Um, but I think some of these challenges that clearly know no borders are things that can help governments to realize that we have to work together on them. Yes, you're right. And we are coming to the end of our interview. And I still have a question about, uh, do you have an example about another public-private partnership in your cross-border region? I think public-private partnership is a good tool to improve the cross-border cooperation. Yeah, and this is something that we've struggled with a lot in the United States in particular, is really public-private partnerships. We don't engage in them to the extent that that Canada does. And then when you talk about doing that in a cross-border context, it becomes even more challenging. And this is something that we're trying to work through right now through um, through the Cascadia Innovation Corridor. And an example of that is this proposal for a high-speed rail corridor that would run all the way from Portland, Oregon, through Seattle, 
and up to Vancouver, BC. And the ultimate goal of this route would be, I think that you'd get from Seattle to Vancouver in something like 30 or 40 minutes. Um, But to take some of the pressure off of that highway corridor that's already congested, that's already dangerous, um, that's that's just going to be increasingly overcrowded, and also to connect that to some housing affordability and a broader cross-border transportation network. Um, So there's a lot of challenges around that project, but one of the big challenges that um, is being looked at right now is governance. And how do you develop a public-private partnership to support something that, again, crosses borders and not just between Canada and the U.S., but also between Washington State and Oregon. So you have to kind of break down those jurisdictional and territorial silos and, and again, kind of figure out ways that you can bring the players to the table. And I think with companies, especially like Microsoft, who are really engaged in creating more cross-border integration in the region, there's a real opportunity to do that. But some of the, I think, legal frameworks have yet to be really figured out in that context. But we'll see that in the coming years, um, that study is being done right now. So we'll learn a lot more when that is done around what's possible and what some of the challenges and opportunities are for doing that kind of work. Thank you. And a political and economic cross-border integration scale from one to 10, one being a region very much divided by the border and 10 expressing a fully integrated cross-border region. Where would you locate the Cascadia region? Oh, that is a good (laughs) question. Um, And I would be really curious to hear what other people say. I think I would maybe say a six. Okay. I think think part of that rests... That's a good number, huh? Well, maybe it's high, but I, I think some of that rests on on what already exists and some of that may be on the vision of where it feels like we're going. Okay, great. I accept this number. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> Last question, but not least, Laurie. How do you see the future of the Cascadia cross-border region? What are the current dynamics for the Cascadia region and what are the long-term prospects? Uh, well, I think... Our region in particular is going to continue to grow. I think we're going to continue to have a lot of population growth um, both sides of the border, and we're going to continue to face shared challenges, whether that's urban sprawl, congestion, um, climate change. You know, we, we're in it. We're really kind of in it together, and I think we're, we see a lot of the same dynamics. Um, I think the fact that we have a history of thinking collaboratively, we have a lot of examples of how we've done cross-border innovation here. I think a lot of our networks will really continue to strengthen as we become more integrated. So I see movement towards a more integrated labor market. Um, We've certainly seen that lately. With the tech companies you know, having presence on both sides of the border, um, I think we're going to continue to expand our cross-border transportation routes. They're still recovering post-COVID, um, but, but we will get there as more people come and more people want to travel. We have the World Cup coming in just a few years. I think that may kind of produce another boon to cross-border travel and integration, much like the Vancouver Olympics did in 2010. Um, and we, you know, we have a lot of dual citizens here, and I think we'll continue to see 
dual citizenship and um, movement across the border that drives that integration. Um, one thing I'll maybe say just to wrap it up is um, I th- I think, and, and people might disagree with this, but I think COVID taught us a lot about the importance of thinking at the regional scale. You know, we we sort of, as many countries around the world did, we kind of retrenched to our nationalist thinking um, and the thought that if you're an American or you're a Canadian, you might have a different risk around the virus or be sort of a different level of threat. But in reality, here in British Columbia and Washington State, particularly in the coastal areas, our health authorities reacted in very similar ways. We had very similar preventive measures and our infection rates varied throughout time. But I think if you look at North America, our region of Western British Columbia and Western Washington state had a lot in common, um, particularly during the pandemic, but before that as well. So if we can kind of break down that nationalistic lens of of thinking of you know Americans in one big homogenous way and thinking of our neighbors across the border then that really reminds us how much we have in common and that the regional scale even from a governance perspective is usually a lot more functional and a lot more productive we're just always again facing that challenge of being separated by an international border, but we have so much in common that I guess I believe that those commonalities will overcome that separation. Perfect. Wow. Thank you very much, Laurie Trotman, for participating in our podcast series. It was a great discussion about the U.S.-Canada border and the emerging cross-border region of Cascadia. Thank you again. Thanks, Ben. It was fun. This was the Borders and Globalization podcast. Today we were with Laurie Trotman. Thank you for your attention and see you soon for the next issue. Bye-bye.